You're listening to Naked League Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 147 is Steve Almas. He started in 1975 in the Minneapolis punk band The Suicide Commandos, but after releasing one record with them in 1977, he and his post-punk outfit Sir Crackers moved to New York and broke up after one EP. You're right now listening to Just Friends, the single by the group that really established the sound that he has now, Beat Rodeo, from their 1984 album, Staying Out Late with the Beat Rodeo. We're going to be talking about his current work. He's just released an album called Everywhere You've Been. We'll talk about The Way I Treated You from that. And then we'll turn to the Suicide Commandos. They actually had a reunion album in 2017, Time Bomb. We'll talk about the song Try Again. Then we'll look to his first solo album, 1992's East River Blues. We'll talk about the title track from that. We'll conclude by listening to Goodbye Nicolina, another song from the new record, which is a duet with Gary Lewis from the Jayhawks. For more information about Steve, just look him up on Facebook. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you want to support the effort, get ad-free versions of these episodes and my show notes for current episodes, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I'd also very much appreciate if you could leave a rating or review for this podcast on Apple Music or wherever you listen to this. Here we go. So I'll have played a little bit of Just Friends by Beat Rodeo from Staying Out Late with the Beat Rodeo 1984. To get folks situated, it's hard to say where to start with you because we do have the punk thing, which we'll talk about later. I'm from the past. <laughs> but it seemed like around here or the Beat Rodeo solo EP that was before that seemed to be kind of where the sound that you're still more or less using was established. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, it definitely has, you know, evolved from that. I mean, even the Suicide Commandos, we made an album in 2017. And I think the sound of that was quite a ways from the sound we were making back in 1977. So we're going to get pretty quickly to the newest thing, which is a very solid album in this. I guess when I hear sort of alt country, country rock, it's very easy for that style to kind of turn into cliche or something, but I like your songs are all very articulated. Like the musicians are thinking, the lyrics are sharp. I really like this new album. Can you tell us sort of where you're at with this album and the way I treated you in particular, the song you picked? I do a bit of singing and I do a bit of playing, but I consider myself a songwriter. The way I treated you was kind of my homage to Roger Miller, only in the respect that I was trying to write a song where the words tumble out the way like some of his do. That was kind of where I started and it just kind of ended up what it was. Well, I'm not the person who usually dwells on my last past mistakes. I've made a few. I've always saw myself as one who gives more than he takes. What can you do? When I'm looking back and thinking about the times I may have made a mess or two, I tell myself I've gone this far with very few regrets. But the only real regret I have is the way I treated you. I wonder now if you look back at me. And if you do, what do you think? At a party I would talk and laugh and flirt with any girl who likes a drink 
afraid to be alone for just a minute that I wasn't straight with you. I drove your car, I drank your glass, I smoked your cigarette. But the only real regret I have is the way I treated you. The way I treated you wasn't good, wasn't right. Just a way for a lonely coward boy to get his sorry ass through the night. And that ain't right. You're doing all right And it's funny after all these years To find myself here thinking late at night And though I'm sure it's for the best That you moved on I wonder why it is That though I've gone this far in life With very few regrets The only real regret I have The only thing keeps me up at night The only thing I'd like to change is the way I treated you The only thing I'd like to change is the way I treated you So what's with the sort of Mexican feeling opening and that choice of guitar line? Was that also a Roger Miller thing or that was just synthesized onto that? It was in the respect that that's my friend John Grayboff playing on that. Roger Miller's lead guitar player used a nylon string guitar. And so I asked John to do the same. I said, you know, maybe you can use a nylon string guitar on this. I, I was kind of thinking of Roger Miller when I wrote the tune. And then he kind of just took it in a whole other direction. It's almost a little more Marty Robbins or something like that. The people I choose to play with, I choose them because I'm going to might suggest something abstract, but I'm not going to be telling these people what to play. Sure. Although the length of things, I mean, it's a pretty long solo in the middle. It's like a full verse as opposed to kind of what you'd expect of just throw out the first two lines of the verse or something and then stop soloing. I enjoy, I enjoy listening <laughs> to them. So, so what, what about the rhythm section on this as well? Is this a kind of, they know what the style is? Three songs have stand-up bass on them that Tony Garnier Bob Dylan's musical director played those. He's on stand-up bass. Um, he came into the project from the drummer, T.J. Mayani, who he plays with Steve Gunn and a lot of other people, but he also is soon to be my son-in-law. So it was a total gas to get to play with him on a whole record. But yeah, Tony plays in T.J.'s jazz trio. So he brought him in. That doesn't really answer. Um, the Fender bass, which actually, the uh, way I treated you has Fender bass on it. Okay is the bass player is a guy named Mark Sidgwick, who would be known to some 
punk pop people as uh, he was the bass player in Holly and the Italians. They were this great kind of punk pop band in the late 70s. Tell That Girl to Shut Up was, I think, their biggest song. He's English. He came over here as part of that project. And he's just been working here ever since. But he actually filled in on bass and beat rodeo for a little while. And that's where I first met him. We've done a lot of work together over the years, too. And he's another one I can speak in pretty abstract terms. And he's going to turn it into something that I'm really pleased with. Well, we're the three of you at least playing live together because, yeah, okay, getting a bass player in to go boom, 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 boom. Like, I realize there's a little more to it than that, but like, you could do that. And I'm sure you have in some of your other projects, right? Where you just overdub everything yourself. This was supposed to be like a a sort of organic foundation to build on. Yeah. All the, uh, pretty much the heavy lifting of the basic tracks were done in Eric Amble's Cowboy Technical Services studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And, you know, all the bass, both stand-up bass and fender bass and drums, the rhythm guitars, and the background vocals, ukuleles, the sax and the keyboards. That was all done in the same place. Rhythm guitar, bass, and drums was all cut live together. I thought this was upright bass on this, but just because it's so staccato it's very easy with an electric i believe that's fender bass on that okay i remember i had a player who used a fender bass who would wedge something under the bottom of the string to kind of so it would not ring is that the technique the bass in the studio there at cowboy technical has a piece of foam under there yeah a lot of work to imitate the sound of an upright yes i guess i was also hearing a simon and garfunkel kind of just because it's this descending line and mrs robinson sort of thing with that tight harmony, is that you harmonizing yourself on this one? On that one, it is, yeah. I tried to do that on a few. That's how Gary Lewis came into the project, because I have an Airstream trailer out in the backyard, and I have a little home studio in there. And I did cut most of my vocals at home, just because I like being alone when I sing. And while my studio is really basic, if if I put a good mic in there, I can cut vocals there. And I was in there one day and I, I had that song, Goodbye, Nicolina, and I was trying to sing to myself, to the lead vocal. It just was not happening. I was really getting kind of bummed out about it. And I just, you know, the miracle of this modern age, I said, you know, this would sound really good if Gary sang the harmony. And I just called him up right then. I said, Gary, I'm trying to sing the song. It's not happening. Would you consider having a go? And he said, sure, send it down. So I sent him a little rough mix. And like four days later, this beautiful harmony vocal came back. And that was really fun. That was really satisfying. So when you record vocals on your own, are you punching in a lot? Are you trying to get the whole thing in basically one take or at least on the lead? I usually do multiple takes and take the best from a group of full takes. Are you using the fact that you're recording by yourself against yourself to move words around, you know, to really line it up? If any of that was called for, that would be done by somebody else later. Okay, so they added the the pitch correction in post. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully we didn't need too much of that either. My last album was a more acoustic one, and I did it with the same guy that I'd done some electric albums. So he was doing kind of the same level of pitch correction as he was before, but on the acoustic album, it was much more stark to me. It jumped out. And I wonder, especially when you're singing with a country style where you're, you know, there's a lot of bending the notes more, you know, where like doing any pitch correction at all to that kind of does violence a little too, you know, you want it to sound perfect and nice, but then 
it's hard to compromise. I think you want it to sound natural, and I think we achieved that. <laughs> the sort of referring to yourself in the third person. Wait for a lonely coward boy to get his sorry ass through the night. It's talking about being, I was too afraid. Like, it's a kind of a confessional for a country song. I don't know, maybe you can tell, maybe this is more typical than I thought, but it seems like a little more self-psychoanalytic than I would expect uh, for such a jaunty little melody. Any sort of thought on how you were crafting the message here? I think most songwriters use things out of their life. My songs are definitely not a diary. And if I do take something from real life, I will definitely mess with it as much as it needs to uh, make the song better. You know, I, I didn't have any agenda to uh, tell a story that particularly rang true. I, I wonder if there's a few women that think that song is about them. I don't know. I'm not, nobody said anything yet. No, I, I'm just always interested by the way the tone of the lyrics matches with the tone of the music, that this could be any number of jaunty themes in here. And the fact that you enlightens it by referring, you know, just a way for a lonely coward boy to get his sorry ass, you know, to kind of use a little vernacular in third person, like it lightens it up. That's the dark moment of the song. I mean, the in general, the guy's like got this happy life, uh, he finds himself thinking back about one regret. You know, I mean, it fit to call the album Everywhere You've Been, because I think this is a record made by somebody that's been around the block a few times and the lyrics reflect that. You know, I don't think somebody that's 30 years old would be looking back the way I do in a song like The Way I Treated You. I'm a teacher and uh, something I learned in teacher school, they had this psychiatrist Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They, he had these stages of life and the last stage of life is old age. And this really got to me when I was reading it. But, he's, you know, in old age, you either feel contentment or despair, depending on how you've lived your life. Maybe the song's channeling a little bit of that. You know, I think the narrator definitely, for the most part, feels contentment, but he is a little bit pricked in the side by this one thing that bothers him. Yeah, well, ambivalence seems to be the only honest approach to take toward almost anything. It's good to have some well of contentment and be able to still sing. But if you're not acknowledging these various things that could have been better or whatever, then that's uh, dishonest in some way. So, uh, you know, this is nice to see this treated in this kind of light format. You were just saying that the Roger Miller style was to just keep pouring the lyrics out. Yeah, I wanted them to just kind of spill out of my mouth. That's what I was going for. So like when you got to the line... So afraid to be alone for just a minute that I wasn't straight with you. That pregnant pause there, I thought that was interesting that you didn't just kind of fill it up. Was that just a matter of the number of words you'd written? And so there had to be a pause somewhere? Well, it was a good spot for a pause, right? As opposed to just a minute pause that I wasn't straight, you know. Yeah, the pause before saying a minute seemed like a good idea. Sure. We're backtracking a little bit because we're talking about the Suicide Commandos, which I guess is the thing that put you on the map before you were on the map as Pete Rodeo on IRS Records. And in fact, I was going to sort of use the old 1978 it is, right? Is when your album came out with them? Yeah, the Commandos album came out in early 78, yeah. Was, was thinking that we should introduce you with that, but it seemed to not really represent what you're doing now. In fact, it was only because I pulled up a video that I could figure out what on the old album 
you were actually singing because your singing style is so different than it became just a couple years later. Well, I would describe that as I started singing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed you could still do that. And let me, actually, let me just insert a clip here from uh, Attacking the Beat from that. The Suicide Commandos make a record. So I just watched a live clip of that song from 2013, I think, at least that's when it was uploaded. And you can still do that voice. Like it's still within your lexicon. (laughs) But we wanted to talk about, we picked a song from the reunion album, 2017's Time Bomb. The song was Try Again. So this is a three singer songwriter band. You're equally contributing throughout the album. And I don't know, what was it to kind of meld your new sound together with the old band sound? You know, I don't think we made too much effort to meld it to the old sound. I mean, it felt like almost in a way we were able to channel a lot more of the music we loved when we first got together than we were able to when we were that age. You know, we could just play better, like play more stuff, you know, that one of the songs has like a Yardbird style rave up in it. And there's stuff in there that kind of reminds me of Phil Manzanero era, Roxy music, guitar things. I think this song got a bit of that. It's got a bit of the, you know, Roxy guitar vibe in it. I was just thinking of things, anything that we just kind of liked when we got started, I think kind of found its way into the music on that album. Oh 
I see what you're talking about with that guitar solo, which I was thinking, which was just that he was using feedback on there, or do you know? I think it is feedback. And there's also this kind of that's going during that section. Several different guitars with different stuff going on on them, yeah. Was one of the things preventing the stylistic variety you would have liked in the old stuff, was it kind of a punk purism or something that like we got to... Keep to some. I mean, we were so early on in punk. One of the nicest things anybody ever said to me, somebody said once that, you know, you guys were punk rock when you could own all the punk rock records because there were so few of them. I think there was less of a codified sound then, but I think, you know, I mean, there was only three of us and there's like virtually maybe some guitar parts are double, but there's virtually no overdubs on that record. And it has a much more uniform sound because it's just, guitar, bass, and drums with a vocal or two. Although I saw, despite your obvious love of harmony vocals on the new record and on your the several previous, where there's just constant dual vocals, or are they just not into singing harmony so much? Like, I know it's a little bit on some songs. I don't want to make a blanket statement, but <laughs> there were harmonies that I submitted to that record that were not accepted. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> okay. Everybody got the final say on their own songs, you know, so there wasn't a lot of harmony on that. Although there's a bitchin' sweet-like chorus on Chris's song, Late Lost Stolen Mangle. I was just thinking of that, because that kind of is the closer. But I think I did have to kind of talk them into that. <laughs> They're not ELO fans. It is not that uh, kind uh, of... <laughs> I wanted to, I was just thinking, of, yeah, you know, when Suicide Commandos first got together, we'd be driving around in the car, and that song Ballroom Blitz was always on. <laughs> And I love those sweet vocals were so good. Those giant blocks of harmony. So going back to bass after playing guitar mainly for this band, but I noticed in this song, at least the bass is the melody, you know, you're, you're holding them. <laughs> well, not only that, but another reason I like that song, there's two basses. <laughs> so one just playing dun, 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 dun. And then one actually doing the melody. Yeah, one, one holding it down and one doing that little riff. Yeah. Although then I'm surprised that sort of a harmony with that kept going in my mind of like doing a third above that, you know, of, of something. Well, yeah, so you could get started and never stop, probably. So what is this song about? Who are you talking to here? Something about being a band member or something? What, what is this? Do you have an idea? Trying to put a positive, jokey, friendly spin on a relationship that's not going particularly well. 
and just try to be a kind of tongue in cheek about it. Okay. So if you try it again, like you want it in, as in the relationship, not in yes. the professional organization that I've written. <laughs> the, <laughs> no, it is kind of a, it's a relationship song. And, you know, the recording debut of my dog, Kendall, too, which he demanded a co-writing credit, but I said no. Almost exactly on beat. Like the second time, it's interestingly after it hits the three and then he barks. She made the album because when I cut the original demo, which was just me with an acoustic guitar, you know, I was making a demo and I was doing it to a beat in earphones. And she pretty much barked twice right on beat with the song. I said, oh, that's going in. So that, that's where it's from. We just clipped it out and put it in there. On the stop, I would even choose you last. I was trying to count out. Was there a click on this? Because it's not quite even choose you last. Boom, boom, boom is what you'd expect. But it's not that. It's not on the four. It's like on the one, the three and and then it starts kind of quicker than you would think. I would even choose you last. I don't think it's that tricky. No, it's okay. And it's exactly the same both times. Yeah, I guess we even have all that on the first song we talked about where the way I treated you is the whole thing is a pickup. So it kind of makes it a little unexpected, like, you know, the guitar solo is happening and then it's not like the guitar solo gets to fill up the rest of the measure and then the chorus comes in. Like, no, the whole the way I treated is all pickup. So like you got to cut off that somewhere. get back to Steve in just a minute. I need to tell you about our sponsor, Nebbia, and their Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. So a great place for me to come up with melodies is the shower, but that uses up a lot of water, and you don't want that kind of guilt interfering with your retreat from the world. But surely you've also been at a hotel or something where they use a shower head that's designed more to save them money than for your comfort, and it's terrible. It doesn't get the shampoo out. It does not provide that enveloping feeling that a shower really requires. Nebbia has cracked that nut. The Nebbia by Moen Shower Spa was developed by engineers who used to work at Apple, at Tesla, at NASA. The result is a shower head that uses 45% less water, yet its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition. If you go to Nebbia's website, there is a calculator. It will show you that this shower head will pay for itself in less than a year. And yet, Nebbia's atomized droplets rinse shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair... It is called a spa shower because it really fills the space. It is an enveloping, steamy experience. You don't have to keep rocking back and forth to feel warm from head to toe. And it's also got nice features like you can raise and lower it. So if it's getting to be a little too much, you can just put your head above the whole thing. And I have the model with the wand, so you can pull that off, wash your feet. So, well-designed, available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom. Easy to install. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. No plumber required. Probably take you about 15 minutes. So why not give yourself, your family, this little treat to improve your shower experience? The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199. For Nakedly Examined Music listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 100 people to use the code NEM at Nebbia.com will get 10% off all Nebbia products. Right, that's the shower, but they also have super well-designed, environmentally friendly curtains, bath mats, hooks, other stuff like that. It's a great deal to jump on. Go to Nibia.com. That's N-E-B-I-A.com slash N-E-M. Check out all they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code N-E-M while checking out will save 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use that code N-E-M to save 10%. 
you're saying that there's a sort of enforced minimalism <laughs> from the band? Definitely did not want too many harmony vocals in there, that's for sure. Well, even just what are we doing in the spaces between verses or something? For the most part, it's just you playing that thing again, as opposed to the next song we're going to talk about, where your lead guitarist is sort of, as we would say in the biz, wanking throughout, <laughs> you know, playing little riffs, being a lead guitarist, filling up some space. I guess it's just being, this is a punk band. There's only one guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And so everything is just going to be very stripped. And even that solo, like that by using feedback and doing that, what you were calling a Manzanera thing, it sort of means that you're not playing any little tricky licks, that it just is a pure bit of energy that is coming out and yeah. clawing at you and then retreating. Yeah. Some of the other tracks, there's a little more ornamentation in terms of what was the the one that was so kind of big star? For such a mean time. Yes. Well, I think that might have the only uh, outside player on the record. I think Mitch Easter bangs a tambourine on that. There you go. All right. Allowing a tambourine on the record. That seemed like yeah, a pretty out of character thing for this very record. Punk rock. I had to kind of, <laughs> I had to push for that too, but see, it was my tune, so I could. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't care. I wasn't trying to adhere to anything except making them sound good. And it is pretty much guitar, bass, and drums. I think I play organ on one song, but it's me too. So it's okay. It's us, you know. So how did this, was this uh, mostly a recording project or did you use this for some subsequent reunion gigs and things? We did a big promo push when it came out. That was like in May of that year. And then we did a couple of high profile gigs. We played a gig with Soul Asylum and Guided by Voices, a big gig, and then uh, did a, another nice one in one of the city parks in Minneapolis. And, you know, not a lot of gigs, but some good ones. I mean, I know you don't live in the same city as those guys. Are you still getting some pressure or do you feel like the audiences, if we do a reunion gig for this, then I'll get twice as many people seeing me as I would with my normal thing? Or is that really not a thing? It's kind of apples and oranges, but I enjoy playing those gigs with the Suicide Commandos. Suicide Commandos was really a group where it has to be the three of us or it's just not it. I really enjoy that aspect of it. You know, it's not, I mean, Chris and Dave, the other two members of the band have played in, together and other things over the years, never really stopped. But it's only the Suicide Commandos when it's the three of us. Were there potential legal issues at some point in, in terms of like, you're the one who's leaving town and they could easily just get another bass player and keep playing something with approximately the same sound, but they would just always call it something else. At least pretty if they're doing sure that. they would always would have felt too. They just needed to call it something else because it just wasn't it unless it was the three of us. Well, it is a, a band name that I think you'd only pick when you're that young. Probably you would not pick that now for one of your new not, units. No. It's a little too inflammatory. Well, let's get to your solo project. So we had the uh, Suicide Commandos record, and then you went to New York. And so Crackers, this short-lived, this seems sort of halfway in between. Yeah, started in Minneapolis, ended rather quickly in New York after we got there. But, and we just popped out that one EP. Which has some of the punk thing, but has the cowboy flavor already a little bit. I would say it's a little post-punk, but with a good dose of... Uh, Meeting the DBs really influenced the sound of, a, of that combo, I would say. So then w what was the transition then to the Beat Rodeo EP and then that group where it really had a traditionalist. I lived in Austin and they had a thing called Cowpunk, 
And this is not that. This is actually a shift to rock and roll with the country flavor as opposed to something punkish at all. We kind of got grouped in with Rank and File and Jason and the Scorchers when we started. But I think all three of those bands sound completely different. You know, there wasn't like a codified sound. It was the same thing in punk. When Suicide Commandos were playing punk, there was a much less of a codified sound than even like three years later. Yeah, when you had a few internationally popular punk bands kind of, this is the sound of punk. This is what this is like now. The title track from East River Blues. So this is your first solo album a few years after Beat Rodeo had broken up, but you said it's still all those same guys playing behind you. It was sort of a surprise to the Beat Rodeo when our contract with IRS ended. And so we had turned in demos for a third album. So some of the songs on that Easter Blues record, I'm sure some of those demos, although I don't, this particular song was not. The drummer that played on the first IRS Beat Rodeo uh, on the New York cuts on that, he's on it and the bass player from Beat Rodeo and Bill, the who was my partner in Beat Rodeo the whole time, he plays guitar on that too. And George Usher, who was kind of in the Beat Rodeo family. So yeah, it could have been a Beat Rodeo track. So George Usher is doing the keyboards? Yeah, singing the harmony vocals. Lewis King drums, Dan Prater bass. Uh, no, no, Lewis. It was actually, Lewis is on the second Beat Rodeo record. And uh, Mike Osborne, Mike Osborne and Peter Moser played on the first record. Okay. Uh, but this was Mike, yeah. Say 
This sounds like a song about breaking up a band. What, what is this about? It's slightly amusing to me now. Is, is I think I wrote that song when I was 30 years old and was feeling over the hill in the music business. I had two good shots at the brass ring and they both folded and the trajectory of my career had just been going like this before that. Always something. And then all of a sudden... I was a hard worker and I didn't really know what to work hard at then. It was just a confusing, confusing time. And I'm singing to myself, but, you know, to Brother George Usher in the song, should we keep doing this? What are we doing? You know, like, and of course, now, 34 years later, here we are with a new record. And, you know, I couldn't be happier that I'm still making new music now, you know, but... That long ago, I was thinking, well, should I go get a job in a bank? I don't know. It's just going to be all synths from here on out. 1986, it's just going to keep going more like that. (laughs) So thank goodness that did not happen. Didn't happen, no. Any thoughts on the arrangement on this one? I was saying how for this kind of music, this is not the bass player going boom, 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 doing a Roger Miller thing. Kind of a singer-songwriter thing, right? Like, that's what I would call it. And... uh, yeah, that track, it just came together. That was one case of a song where there's really no fiction in that song. That's really me talking about what's on my mind. Let me play just the bridge here.
So just as a piece of arrangement, any thoughts about how that would come together now that, especially as a band leader, was it any different in dynamics between you and the other players as it would have been four years earlier? I'd spent so much time playing with those guys. We just kind of fell into the groove on that one, you know, and we were in a really nice studio called RPM, which is actually, it was the same studio we had done the Second Beat Rodeo record. And we made friends with the engineer, a guy named Jeff LePay. And Jeff very kindly recorded this album in his own time in the studio. So we got a much, much discounted rate to go in there. So that's really like the last of the old style. You know, you forget that in the 80s, it was really expensive to make a good sounding record. I mean, it changed with the digital recording in the 90s. It's just like the cost of the whole thing went way, way down. But it was so expensive to go into a 24-track studio with a big room with beautiful outboard gear. And that changed. So that the sound of like East River Blues is kind of the tail end of that sound. Big wooden room, grand piano, just beautiful outdoor gear, 24 track, two inch, all of that. So is the cheapest way to do that then to record you and the drums and the bass at the same time to get started so that you're not having to do or or you want to make sure that each part is perfect and just do one at a time. It's like click track drums then add bass, that kind of stuff. No, I haven't done that. But I would love to record everybody together. But yeah, it's prohibitively expensive. So at the very least, I assume like the guitar and the keys were overdubbed? The rhythm guitars, bass and drums were cut together. And that's where I could be sure we got the feel of the song down doing that. So then keyboards go last just in terms of... There there aren't a lot of keyboards on this record, but... Some pretty prominent piano throughout this song, as well as the, you know, sustained organ thing. This song in particular, yeah. East River Blues. Yep. No, I I think this whole track's cut together with the guitar solo overdub. Yeah. No, we cut this, everyone together. Okay, so you get the actual live... There's at least the danger of if you're finishing a vocal line and then something answers it, like, well, are the guitarist and the piano going to crash there oh, no, I'm, sh- I'm sure the vocal on the take was a scratch vocal i bet george was playing piano he overdubbed the organ mm-hmm. and uh bill overdubbed the guitar solo but yeah there would have been rhythm guitar acoustic guitar bass drums and piano would have been the track and do you have an idea i mean this chorus I don't want to just say catchy. There's something sort of iconic about. It. Do you know what you're what you're channeling in that kind of sloganeering? I don't know. It, it's I'm going down down to the banks. I'm going to drown. Like there's some definite New Orleans or something. You know, you had Roger Miller clearly in mind for the first one. Did you have something in mind for this kind of statement that works very well? You know, in general, I, I put the antenna out to write songs, and I don't really know what's going to happen. An interesting thing that happened on. My newest album, Suicide Commandos, had a show in Minneapolis. And so I was flying out there to join them to do the show. And I got on the plane and something happened that hasn't happened in years and years for me. But I had a whole row of seats to myself on the plane. And I laid down and immediately fell asleep. And I woke up a little while later and I just had this cigarettes, coffee, or you in my head. and. I sat up, I had an iPad, and I just wrote out the whole song. 
all the verses, just pretty much everything. I, I would have to look to see if I'd probably move some things around later. But basically, I just wrote the whole song. And then I laid down and I kind of fell back asleep for a little while. And I woke up again and uh, I cannot make you love me was in my head. And I sat up and I wrote another whole lyric Two on a three hour plane ride. Two of them just dropped down from the sky into my fingers and onto the iPad. And I don't know how that happened. And I don't know why it happened. And I don't know. It's never happened before. And I wonder if it will ever happen again. I don't usually write all the words before I have a tune. But in this case, like both of those just came like that. And that was weird. There's something about travel that I've written a lot of songs like on long car trips or something. And you turn off the stuff and just some melody keeps going or walking around. Cause usually in a car, at least like you turn on music or podcasts or whatever, but just being forced to have your mind occupy itself with the convenience of eliminating those kind of things. Or I don't know, you could always go for a walk. It's not like you, you can't just get out of the house, but something is freed up that, you know, when you're just sitting in front of a computer or whatever, trying it, it's this involved sleeping and flying. And I'm not sure how. <laughs> I'm not sure how. I'm just looking at the list of solo albums here. Seven or so through those years, you know, since East River Blue, this sort of set sort of a template. Can you say a little about that progression? I know you, you know, for a while you were crediting your albums to you and Ali Smith, even though, well, on your new album, you have just as many harmony vocals. You could have. Those were duets records. And I mean, she sang lead vocals on a good half of the songs. And that was kind of a, yeah, it was a different kind of project. Uh, a lot of cover songs on them. Um, They were just, you know, different that way. Like, this is all my stuff. And yeah, I love harmony singing. I hope we can take this out this summer. And I hope that Rebecca and Daria, I can get them to come with me because I want to bring that singing thing with if we uh, do it live. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just looking at sort of the amount of space between each album. I mean, I know you're so you're you're teaching. How much are you able to keep music in (laughs) while you're doing? Yeah, the summers are kind of for writing the way it is right now. I took a five-year break from teaching and I got a lot more work done during that time. Like recently or this is... I've been back for four years now, but yeah, nine years ago I left and then came back four years ago. Okay. So was that like a, a conscious boost for trailer songs or something somewhere around the it was, early... It was right after trailer songs that I left teaching, I think. And then... Uh, of trying to tour more, kind of get back into it? I went out with the Dell Lords and did a lovely European tour with them and did some shows in the States too. And yeah, it was just more active, more writing, more, just more music. I produced some records for other artists. I produced a few records for a songwriter guitarist named Karen Hagloff. And yeah, it was just a lot more music. And then I needed a full-time paycheck for a while again. So here I am. Yeah, no, I'm always just totally interested in how folks balance all this stuff. Like it seems most people, you have to do something, either they're full-time studio guys that then can do their solo record, you know, the amount of people that can actually just do a record every few years and like, and tour with that and support themselves is just minuscule (laughs) compared to... Well, I'm blessed. I've got a good family of players to call upon when it's time to make a record. And uh, yeah. I'm going to do some woodshedding on another one now. 
Well, let's close out here by just playing the one you mentioned, Goodbye Nicolina, so from the new record, which has Gary Lewis from Jayhawks singing harmony on this. Do you have any other comments about this? This has a very, you know, traditional sort of Flying Burritos Brothers sound to it. Lovely steel guitar by John Grave. Anything else you're working on? Is the next batch of songs already in the in the works? I'm about two songs into a new project. Okay. So <laughs> okay. When I got twelve, I got yeah, so it's about ten to go. <laughs> All right. And how does this, you know, just playing with the Dell Lords, are you just being purely a sideman on that? Or is that I was a sideman on that. Yeah, I was a bass man. If uh if anybody's gonna hire me to play, they'd they'd hire me to play bass. So that's what I did with them. Is that what that I saw in your, your bio, there was something between Beat Rodeo and your solo stuff that you did something with Alex Chilton in there that maybe you just played. I, I played solo at this festival in Berlin called Berliner Days. And this friend of mine, uh, Christoph Hahn, who now plays guitar with the Swans, he had a band then called the Cool Kings. And uh, Alex had produced the Cool Kings album. So I played rhythm guitar and Alex played bass in the cool kings for these berliner days gigs so that was fun yeah alex and i were in the in the band yeah <laughs> that's a weird situation but i guess he did a lot of unusual things like that in his latter yeah, days very unpretentious guys very cool guy all right excellent well here it is goodbye nicolina thanks Hey.
walk beside you down life's crooked path. Now it is here, what once was so far. Took so long to find you in our aftermath. Oh, say. Thanks so much to Steve. A long and interesting career here. You can get up-to-date information about whatever he's doing by just following his page on Facebook. My next episode is with violinist David Cross, formerly of King Crimson, and I've got Rod Abernethy, and most recently Josh Caterer, the singer for Smoking Popes. You can get all my episodes at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Please make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed and not just listening to this through the Partially Examined Life feed. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter and share posts from there or however you want. And as always, I'd appreciate your support at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I'm very excited. I am fully vaccinated. I have a plane trip booked, plans to practice with my band, and will definitely be getting out to see some live music. Oh man, oh man, it's been a long time. Keep on musicking, folks. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.